trigger warning. The following episode contains references to Animal cruelty Human suffering Death Factual inaccuracies Several entitled people making light of all these things. If any of the aforementioned topics cause you discomfort, you may want to listen to a different episode. I have done the test that I was meant to, and now I'll return to you. Why are we running? Are we time to play chase? I'm Andy. All right, men, hit him with the secret weapon, and then give him the jazz hands. I'm Adam. Don't you think we should train the cat before we install the cyborg implant? Now we'll leave the easy bit for last. I'm Kelly. Before we get to our duel, let me show you my awesome ring. I'm Sean, and this is Acid Pop. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today on Acid Pop, we're going to talk about strange weapons. Like laser gun? Yeah, some laser guns for sure. Oh, really? So etymology, strange, comes from Latin extraneous, which is basically a way to say foreign. Apparently Latins were a bunch of xenophobes because foreigners were strange. (laughs) Look at these foreign weapons. (laughs) Weapon is from Old German Waffen. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Which means an instrument of fighting or defense. When we're playing Anthem later, I'm going to say, look at my new Waffen. Waffen. (laughs) It also means penis. Look at that. Um, it is new, though, so I would like somebody to admire it. So this episode is weird dicks. Uh, foreign penises is what we're talking about <laughs> That's today. next episode. So hoplophobia is the closest I could find to fear of weapons. It comes from Greek hoplon, meaning arms. Hoplon Cassidy. This one doesn't really seem like a phobia. I mean, you should be afraid of weapons. That's basically what they're for. So, yeah. sure. Adam, hoplon Cassidy, you, it's an arms cowboy. It makes it sound like Goro from... Combat wearing a cowboy hat. Awesome. And a little vest. (laughs) (laughs) So we're on to our acid pop quiz. So for our true false section, I'm going to describe a weapon and you're going to tell me if it's a real weapon or not. What makes a weapon real? Uh, Basically, if it's been used in combat or if it's planned to be used in combat. Okay. So first up, a lightning gun. They didn't they want I've seen it in the Command and Conquer, Tesla guns. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't put it in Command and Conquer if it wasn't true. It's true. Like that chicken cannon. <laughs> <laughs> or the gun in Battle Zone where it fired dubstep. <laughs> Worked in Avatar. Uh I guess so. Yeah, sounds true. False. So this is true, or at least it's under development. The U.S. Army has a prototype that shoots a high-intensity laser at a target. This laser is so powerful, it actually strips electrons from the air in the path of the beam, which makes a negatively charged channel. (laughs) Then, a large amount of electricity is discharged, and it follows the path of least resistance down the channel to whatever the laser was pointed at. Give that to me. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But as of right now, it's not very handheld because it's a very powerful laser and a lot of electricity. Well, put it on my car or something. Come on. Twisted metal. What are the applications? I mean, how Uh is that better at killing people than a bullet? (laughs) Because it looks cooler. (laughs) Kidding me? That would look awesome on like a battleship or something. (laughs) I mean, if it's a laser tracking system, you could probably shoot down missiles or Or like a predator drone or something. Yeah. Yeah. So next up, a hallucinogenic bomb. 
<laughs> this God. also sounds very true to me. Yeah. I buy that one. That sounds true. Yeah. Well, this one is actually false. Oh. This weapon was under development by the U.S. in the 1960s alongside other projects like MK Ultra. Sure. But this one never got off the ground. They said it was too groovy. (laughs) (laughs) So BZ is a hallucinogenic substance, and the idea was to drop a bomb that would release a cloud of the stuff to cover an area and drive anyone in it mad. (laughs) Less groovy. Only for a little while. But BZ was expensive to make, and it had a bad habit of releasing on production lines, making for a very interesting day at work. (laughs) Once the bombs were released, they covered up to a quarter acre, which is about enough to coat a house and its yard, and they were highly visible. The cloud was so dense that a hanky over the mouth was more than enough to stop inhalation. Yeah, don't go over there. Don't step into the shimmering rainbow cloud. (laughs) (laughs) See what that guy's screaming about spiders? Don't step there. And lastly, the effects were really unreliable. Some people had to be strapped down until they stopped scratching themselves to get the spiders off, but others just felt a bit restless. (laughs) I feel one with the universe. And for these reasons, the weapon was never used. So next, a sticky grenade, a la Halo. I was going to say, I I know that the elites are using them, those one percenters. I want to say it's real, but I've also maybe have just seen it in so many video games. I think it's real. (laughs) Didn't they? They used it in Saving Private Ryan. I suppose those were just bombs inside socks covered with tar. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say true. I like all these things. I'm going to say true. Yeah, this is true. During World War II, the British didn't have that much that could deal with tanks, and one of the ideas they came up with was a sticky grenade. This grenade is round with a handle, and it has two pins. The first releases a metal casing revealing a super sticky grenade inside. (laughs) The second pin would arm the grenade, but the five-second fuse wouldn't start counting down until the handle was released, just like a regular grenade. Interesting. Okay. So the idea was that you would arm it, huck it at a tank, and it would adhere to the side. It had some troubles, though. This sticks to your hand? Well, <laughs> what up? <laughs> this grenade's kryptonite was dust. If the uh, bomb got dusty or if it was thrown at a dusty tank, it would just fall to the ground like a normal grenade. But the uh, super sticky stuff stuck really well to clothes. So sometimes a soldier would pull the pin, curl his arm back just to touching his shoulder, and then as if faking out a dog, shoot out his empty arm forward. <laughs> I thought he was going to like reel back and then like throw it with his friend's shirt attached to it. <laughs> the general's helmet. <laughs> The soldier would have one second to realize what happened, and then another four to detach his new brooch. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, the the Germans kept their tanks impeccably clean, so this is never a problem. (laughs) So for these reasons, the War Department in Britain decided not to produce them. That is, until Churchill heard about it. They sounded super (laughs) cool, so he greenlit the production of 2.5 million. Nice. We will stick them on the beaches. (laughs) (laughs) So up next, a whirlwind cannon. Whirlwind cannon. This sounds like somebody would want to try to do it, like a big wind cannon. It fires little tornadoes. No, then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't see that happening. I don't see the use. Yeah. I'm going to say no. Well, this is false, but during World War II, an Austrian doctor named Mario Zippermeer was... (laughs) Hello. If you couldn't guess, he was German. And he was working for the Germans. He invented a whirlwind cannon that could fire out a mini tornado that could blast apart a wooden target at 200 yards. What? What? 
It was really cool, but he had designed it as a weapon to be used against aircraft. And it turns out the higher you go, the less air there is. <laughs> so while it could blast things apart with vigor on the ground, at 20,000 feet, it could barely ruffle hair. That's pretty cool. I so they see threw how that it works. away instead of using it against other people. <laughs> this is useless. I mean, that, that thing completely obliterated that dummy, but it can't be used on a plane. Probably <laughs> <laughs> really wanted to take out a plane with it. <laughs> So our last one here, it's, I don't know what to call this, so I'm just going to describe it. It's a tank with a jet engine instead of a cannon. Whoa. I'm going to say true. That sounds bitchy. So far you're saying just World War II stuff, and there's an entire book called My Tank is Fight that is about <laughs> wacky World War II shit. So like, it has a jet engine instead of a cannon, or does it like move on a jet engine? No, it has a, it has a jet engine out the front. So what does that do? Roasting. <laughs> it sounds really cool. What it does is it flips over the tank on top of the enemy. Then <laughs> <laughs> it spins around in circles. We call it the breaking dancer. <laughs> yeah, this has to be real. It's it's too weird. Yeah, I, I really want it to be true. So this one is unfortunately false. Oh. So the Soviet Union had a chocolate and peanut butter moment when they found themselves with a surplus of old jet engines and tanks. <laughs> They, they, they basically mounted a huge jet engine on the front of a tank and called it a day. <laughs> That's one weapon done. The thought was that this road warrior contraption could trundle along and blast the ground, setting off hidden landmines. That's oh, clever. Okay. Yeah. That worked okay, but the thing was stupid slow, and since it was basically a box filled with jet fuel, it didn't take much to puncture its hole and blow them up. <laughs> also, the jet engine kept stalling out. <laughs> But yeah, we'll have a link to what these things looked like on our site. They're wicked awesome. They're like a steampunk tank. It's awesome. So we're on to our fill in the blank. So bear with me on this first one. This is a bit to get to. So the phaser or personal halting and stimulation response gun is a giant handheld laser that can blind people. In 1995, the United Nations banned blinding weapons, but this gun is under development the U.S., and what do we care what a bunch of wimpy foreigners have to say? <laughs> so the development of this weapon got started in the early 2000s, but in 2009, the U.S. Secretary of Defense stated that they would abide by this ruling. I guess. So the scientists had to work fast to adopt the gun. They dialed it back so that it would only temporarily blind people. Not permanently? The PR department didn't like that it still had the word blind in it, though, <laughs> so they came up with a new term. What does this gun do? The gun... It, it forces you to shut your eyes for an extended period of time. It projects images of Captain Kirk onto your retinas. It's still a laser. It's just they're saying instead of blinding, it does what instead? Oh. What word do they use? Yeah, they have a synonym. Darkens the eyes. <laughs> Dazzles. <laughs> I didn't even think of an old X-Man. <laughs> uh, so something other than blinding. Deafening? Gaze averter. <laughs> it's actually Kelly nailed it. It dazzles. Give <laughs> <laughs> me old razzle dazzle, boys. <laughs> <laughs> so the military's new dazzle gun is still under development. <laughs> oh, I hope they have sequined handles. <laughs> Somebody bring out the Dazzler. <laughs> now they want to make damn sure it doesn't cause eye damage before they start using it in the field. We'll see, though, as it's been pointed out that this gun is so heavy that it takes two hands to lift and has so far cost about a million dollars to develop and can be beaten pretty easily by a pair of sunglasses. 
Yeah, but who's going to have sunglasses on when we first use it? You're going to have a whole <laughs> bunch of dazzled troops. <laughs> so what was the largest projectile ever fired? And I'll take weight or length. It was 20 feet long, weighing one ton. <laughs> Missiles are projectiles? No, this is something that can't propel itself. It was a big cannon. Uh, this was the size of the projectile? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to say half a ton. 200 pounds? <laughs> well, Andy was over on the length, but under on the weight. Whoa. Damn. So during World War II, the French had basically built a big wall between themselves and Germany. It was about 22 feet or 6.7 meters thick with another three feet or one meter of steel on the front. The Germans decided not to go over, around, or under, but to go through the wall. They commissioned the construction of a gun that could blast through the wall in a single shot. Make a statement. Efficiency. Yeah. Give me Dr. Big Guns. <laughs> what the engineers came up with was the Schwascher Gustav. It was kind of like a tank, but instead of treads, it had a pair of train wheels on each side. So it could only travel where there were two parallel train tracks. Two train tracks? Right. Basically, instead of a tread, it had a train on each side. <laughs> Four stories tall and Jeez. 150 feet or 45 meters long. <laughs> okay, Ger Germany cheese. We'll open the gate. George Washington. <laughs> it could fire a bullet that was 12 feet or 3.6 meters tall, 31 inches or 79 centimeters across, and weighed 10 tons or 9,000 oh, no. kilograms. Why do you think they're building two sets of train tracks up to our wall and giving us the finger? <laughs> there is no reason. Ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> So this projectile could be fired over 10 miles or 16 <laughs> kilometers. What the hell? Big bada boom. <laughs> <laughs> it took so long to build and move that by the time it was ready, Germany had already gotten around the barricade. <laughs> <laughs> but they said, fuck it, let's fire this thing anyway. Yeah, basically, they weren't going to spend all that time and money for nothing. So they trucked it or trained it, I guess, all the way out to the siege of Sevastopol. It took 4,000 men five weeks <laughs> to get the stupid thing to the battlefield because they basically had to lay tracks to get it there. Firing this thing is going to be like that scene in the newest Star Wars. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so once there, it fired 48 times over the course of a few weeks. It took 500 men to load and fire, and Jeez. it wasn't wasted on things like troops or tanks. It mostly blew up entire buildings in a single shot. Yeah, we're not going to aim it at troops. We're going to aim it at, I don't know, a capital. The moon. Yeah. <laughs> After this fight, the gun had basically rattled itself into uselessness, and the shell-shocked men who fired it needed a break. The Germans decided it was too much trouble, and they took it apart. Yeah, there's some, somewhere there's 500 old German men going, what? <laughs> <laughs> How many barrels did the gun with the most barrels have? 20. 13. I'm going to, I'm going to just in case you're wondering, I'm not going to count guns that fire one barrel at a time, like, uh, like a gun. gun, right. But ones that fire all at once. 20. Okay. <laughs> it's a hell of a shotgun. You better have somebody holding you. I don't even know how many barrels a normal gun has. Single. Well, yeah, most guns have one. There's a shotgun that has two, a double barrel shotgun. Before revolvers, I think there used to be like, uh forget what they called them but basically like instead of a revolving chamber you just had like four barrels yeah 
Nine. Hmm. Unfortunately, you all went over. Damn. But uh, the appropriately named Knock Gun was <laughs> built by Henry Knock in 1779 for the British Navy. Knock It knock. was a shotgun with seven barrels. Wow. And they shot at the same time? Yep. Meant as a backwards propulsion <laughs> unit. <laughs> There were 500 commissioned by the Royal Navy, but they didn't get used very much. They had a bad habit of breaking the shoulder of whoever fired them. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> and since they were used on boats, the flames that shot out the front and sides of them made sailors afraid that it would set the boats on fire. <laughs> Why is there so many flames coming out of this thing? <laughs> Sounds fucking awesome. Why hasn't this been in a video game? I want to obliterate one man. <laughs> I want to kill the very thought of him. <laughs> so we're on to our terms. What is the macho gaucho? Ooh, sounds like a really cool Mexican gun. <laughs> the macho gaucho is the gouger that macho man Randy Savage used on Jake the Snake Roberts in WrestleMania 12. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's a gun that they made during the Mexican Revolution that fires bombs. <laughs> Um, macho gaucho. Mm-hmm. It's a gun made specifically to shoot guys in the testicles. Oh. <laughs> Can I change my answer to the lost strong Mark's brother? <laughs> I knew you were going to Say the secret word and I put you in a headlock. <laughs> so this was a bullet and it consisted of two metal balls attached by a few inches of steel cable, making a tiny oh. bolus. Ooh. Just slices off the legs. Yeah, so I guess the idea was that they'd wrap around a target, but mostly they leave two holes with a little trench in between them. <laughs> oh, look, his, his torso looks like Baymax. <laughs> it's a long-distance cheese slicer. <laughs> so what was the Krumlov gun? Krumlov. Krumlov. Uh, the Krumlov would take the crumbs from your scone breakfast, pack them into a bullet, and loft them into somebody's skull. <laughs> there you go. I was trying to break down the word to make a joke out of it, but I think you got about as much as you can out of it. <laughs> That's what we have. And I got nothing for that. It's a German gun that fires other guns. <laughs> Invented by Victor Krumloff, this gun fires tiny, strongly worded letters. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly at editors. So this was a gun built by the Germans in World War II with a bent barrel. It came in two models, 30 degrees and 90 degrees. A 90 degree <laughs> barrel gun? Yep. So the idea was that the Germans would be able to take out their enemies without putting themselves in harm's way. It's like a gun periscope. Right. But the gun had some problems. Recoil is hard to figure out around a corner, <laughs> so the guns were hard to aim accurately. What's worse, the stress of rounding a bend tended to cause the bullets to break apart, making the gun effective at only very close range. Also, the stress was hard on the gun, and they tended to be useless after a couple hundred rounds. Oh, I was going to say after two. But... <laughs> basically, after World War One, the Germans wanted, they figured there was going to be a lot more trench warfare, so they wanted something they could shoot up and over the trench without having to poke your head up. That was right, a periscope gun. Yeah. Yeah. So what was Project Habakkuk? <sighs> What are these words? <laughs> uh, well, it's it's Project Habakkuk is an orgy where there's a guy standing there, and if you Habakkuk, you take a cuck. <laughs> <laughs> Neep a cuck, take a cuck. <laughs> <laughs> you okay there, Andy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I just like a tank full of dudes sitting there smiling at Norgy. <laughs> Somebody who has to participate in the war but isn't able to actually like use any weapons. <laughs> so project to uh, train woodchucks for war. <laughs> so during World War II, metal was in short supply and the German U-boats dominated the Atlantic. Britain needed to make an unsinkable warship to get out there and mess them up, but they didn't have a lot of metal to do it. Enter Jeffrey Pike. At this time in history, icebergs were thought to be all but indestructible. So Pike thought, why not make an aircraft carrier out of ice? Icrete. It's going to to take one hell of an ice tray. (laughs) So Churchill loved this plan and gave it the go-ahead. Pike worked with a Canadian team to build it. Now, in order for an aircraft carrier to work, the deck has to be 50 feet or 15 meters above the water. Uh, As it's well known, only 10% of icebergs are above the surface. (laughs) So to achieve this height, they would need to be 500 feet or 150 meters below the water. Jeez. This obviously wasn't practical. So they decided just to make an aircraft carrier and scale it up until the ice would be structurally sufficient. This ended up being about 2,000 feet or 600 meters long and 200 feet or 60 meters wide sure or about twice the size of the titanic <laughs> so testing got started with a crazy steampunk ship made of ice with vents to super cool uh, air running through it Jeez. the prototype had some kinks and by the time the testing was done they thought they could build a full-size one radar and long-range planes took away the need for the navy presence in germany so the project was scrapped i'll uh, see i want to see the giant ice ship that would have yeah. been pretty cool Unfortunately, it was sunk by the remains of the Titanic. (laughs) Crashed into each other. So what was La Petite Protector? Amelie? (laughs) Uh, La Petite Protector is inch eye private eye. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a Derringer or something. Yeah. It's a a tank that I put on my keychain. It fires pepper spray. (laughs) I like the idea of it being a tiny tank. Yeah. That's pretty close, actually. So picture a class ring, but take out the gem and put in a six-shooter. What? That sounds cool. (laughs) Yeah. So this little guy had custom rounds that had to be put in with the aid of a jeweler's screw, (laughs) and there was a little trigger off to the side that could be pulled with your thumb, but the revolver part had to be turned by hand. These guys were briefly in fad in the early 1800s, but the bullets were so small and the barrel was so short that it was basically as effective as a pellet gun. Oh, still sounds really cool. Yes, it sounds like I have explosive punches. (laughs) It's like having the tiny skateboards for your fingers, but this is a gun. Yeah, Yeah. you can assassinate the Ninja Turtles. (laughs) (laughs) So what was the Davy Crockett? The Davy Crockett? Yep. He was the king of the wild frontier. I'm going to say it's... (sighs) Some sort of Texas gun with like 18 barrels. <laughs> I mean, not, not 18 barrels, 18 chambers. So it's a revolver, but it's like... Vroom. I keep wanting to say knife, but I'm, I'm trying to... I'm thinking of uh, like a Bowie knife. I mean, didn't he have a knife? He I'm sure a, he had a knife. He skinned a raccoon. He had to attempt something. <laughs> well, he shot the skin off in a single round. The Davy Crockett was like a... It's like a Final Fantasy gun blade, but it's a Bowie knife with a gun <laughs> on it. Yeah. It's a coonskin cap, but when you pull the <laughs> tail, it's got like a garret. Uh, I thought I was going to turn into an actual raccoon and (laughs) (laughs) maybe throw it at him. So if you've played Fallout and never gotten a hold of the fat man, that's basically what this is. What? Like a nuke launcher? Yep. Developed by the U.S. in the 1960s during the Cold War, the Davy Crockett was the smallest, shortest range nuke ever made. (laughs) It wasn't quite handheld. It took three men to operate, but it was basically a bazooka that shot out a nuke. Why would you want to do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not volunteering for this. I'm not sure this is a great plan, guys. <laughs> so, 
It could be fired up to four miles or six kilometers at a target, and it had a 0.01 to 0.02 kiloton yield. Wow. Still, the user's manual recommended firing it from behind a hill. (laughs) (laughs) Several of these were deployed in wars throughout the 60s and 70s, but luckily none were ever fired in combat. Hill made of lead. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't don't think they know how radiation works. (laughs) (laughs) And that concludes our acid pop quiz. So, before we get going with our stories, I wanted to point out some strange weapons we've already mentioned on previous episodes. So, check out our dams episode for the bouncing dam buster bomb. Check out our pigs episode for flaming pitch-covered pigs and war (laughs) elephants. And check out our sound episode for the LRAD sonic laser. Rad! Yeah. So, let's start with a little story about what happens when Canada tries to be aggressive. (laughs) I'm sure they could if they wanted to. (laughs) Well, let's see. They beat us back. In the early 1900s, when Canada was still pretty dependent on Britain for things, they put in an order for some Lee Einfield rifles that were the standard military rifle at the time. Britain responded that they were trying to upgrade all their troops to this new rifle and they couldn't spare any for Canada. Canada needed some guns and they were trying to be grown-ups and do things for themselves, so they decided to make their own. A recent immigrant to Canada was Sir Charles Ross, a gun designer who had arrived after working for the U.S. for a few years building guns. He came to the government with his Ross rifle design. Intrigued, the War Department went to his factory to see a demonstration. The Ross was tested against the Lee Einfield, and it proved to be lighter and more accurate and have a faster rate of fire. Take that, Lee. Yeah. That was all great. However, they fired a thousand shots from each. The Lee Einfield did very well, but the Ross gun gave up after about 300 rounds. Uh, Ross himself waved away these problems, stating that his gun was designed to work with American ammunition, and the clearly <laughs> inferior British ammunition caused the gun to overheat and warp. Clearly. Hey, Americans, can you sell us some of your ammunition so we can get you? <laughs> who, who would possibly need to shoot more than 300 rounds? <laughs> The committee said, good enough for me, and they signed a contract with Ross. The contract was really, really loose. It allowed Ross to basically import anything he wanted tax-free, and he would make 12,000 rifles the first year with 10,000 each year after for $25 a piece, which was $8 more than the Lee Einfield ran. I feel like this Ross guy might not be very trustworthy. Yeah, it could be. (laughs) And the government would pay him up front. So Ross, Ross got to work, but at the end of his first year, he had made about 1,800 of the promised 12,000 rifles, okay, meaning that the government had paid about $440 a piece for those $25 guns. <laughs> the men had started training with them, and to put it mildly, they were not pleased. <laughs> The manufacturing of the guns was rushed, and they had warped barrels that caused them to misfire. And shoot around corners. <laughs> they still heated up too much, and the shoddy welding would sometimes cause the sight or the bayonet to just fall off. <laughs> <laughs> That's a feature. <laughs> What's more, it turns out that no matter how well the gun worked out of the box, as soon as it got even a little bit dirty, it basically turned into a prop gun. <laughs> For motion picture use only. Why does the mud say this? (laughs) Sam Hughes was the chairman of Canada's first standing small arms community, and he had bet it all on Ross's rifle. He steadfastly refused to acknowledge that he had wasted all that time and money on these crappy guns. 
And so he was one of the strongest advocates for their use to the point of delusion. Despite the numerous complaints, he proclaimed that the rifles were the most perfect and complete in the world. <laughs> Mankind just created a better weapon. This is from God. <laughs> A few years later, World War I broke out and Canada's troops were deployed to the front lines with the Ross rifle. Oh, click, no. click, click. Oops. <laughs> In the throes of the war, the gun was about as reliable as a paper mache boot. <laughs> Which they had also wasted a bunch of money on. <laughs> <laughs> the gun locked up, fell apart, and on more than one occasion, fired the bolt back into the head of oh, the God. shooter while the bullet stayed nestled inside the gun. <laughs> the bullet didn't move. <laughs> As the troops got more and more frustrated and dead, Hughes refused to back down, <laughs> issuing orders that Canadians were forbidden to use any other guns. Jesus, under penalty of death. <laughs> he told Parliament that the Canadian soldiers had to Jeez. sleep with their Ross, ri Ross rifles because if they didn't, British soldiers would try to steal them. <laughs> They're so jealous of our weapons. Remember, <laughs> there's a stupid Lee. <laughs> so no matter what the order said, the troops knew a lemon when they saw it, and they basically <laughs> held on to the Ross so that they could look like they had a gun until they found the first armed corpse and took their <laughs> <Yeah>. gun. <laughs> Where's a Luger? I need a Luger. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving the Ross rifle in the mud where it belonged. Stories got back to the government despite Hughes' efforts, and about halfway through World War One, he was fired and the guns Jeez. were used for kindling. Anything happened to Ross? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> but why? Uh, <laughs> the guy was so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On more than one a troop, I found the men making love to their wives while holding this rifle. <laughs> So I wanted to talk about animal warfare because it's hard enough to convince people to fight for your cause, but getting a bunch of animals to do it has proved to be troublesome in the past. First, during World War II, a crazy dentist named Little Adams came up with what he thought was a brilliant idea. What if you strapped a bunch of timed incendiary bombs to bats and released them behind this. enemy lines? <laughs> They would Only find some. <laughs> they would find some nook in a house or whatever, and then blam, no more house or bat. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, takes care of our house and bat problems. <laughs> so many bats here. <laughs> Sent help. So this was a weird idea to say the least. But the thing was, Adams was old buds with Eleanor Roosevelt. <gasps> Roosevelt, so, no. He convinced her to let him give his pitch to a bunch of high-level generals, and they actually thought it could work. I thought oh, he was going to say they released a whole bunch of bats in the White House. Like, look at them! <laughs> Fly, my children! <laughs> so a facility was set up in New Mexico for testing, and I'll be damned if it didn't work. Sounds feasible. Yep. On more than one occasion, bats got out and hid in local structures, like the <laughs> hangar or the general's car. <laughs> See, it's working. <laughs> Both of which burned to the ground. $2 million were spent on the project, and they were just working out how to make a bomb that could safely deploy bats from a plane when the project got scrapped. <laughs> Not just going to open a cage, no, we have a bat bomb. <laughs> <laughs> There's no official reason why, but most believe it's because this project was taking resources from the Manhattan Project, which was slightly more destructive than exploding bats. Oh, I see. Suddenly nuclear bombs are more, are more important than exploding bats. <laughs> Oh, yeah? Well, Joel Schumacher will see you down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Both with no concern about civilian targets. Nope, not really. Right. So if you know a bit about psychology, you may know B.F. Skinner. What you may not know is that he had an interesting idea during World War II. 
At the time, Americans had missiles, but they weren't very accurate. Pilots didn't want to get close enough to release them, so a new way of steering them was needed. Skinner thought, what if you put a tiny pigeon pilot in the front of each missile? Man, do I love pigeons. (laughs) With little goggles and leather hats. (laughs) If you trained it to peck at whatever you wanted to bomb, then put a screen inside with a pecking sensor, the pigeon would smoothly guide the missile in for the kill. So many things that could go wrong with this. (laughs) The U.S. intelligence office raised quite the eyebrow, but they gave him $25,000 to give it a shot. Eyebrow goes up as the check slides across the table. (laughs) So he did, and it actually worked really well. Pigeons is smart, man. (laughs) Yep. He picked pigeons because they could quickly and reliably be trained to perform an action, and they kept their cool under pressure, as I'm sure you know if you've ever driven over the top of one as it calmly watched the wheels of your car roll by. (laughs) Despite having a proof of concept, the U.S. decided not to go ahead with the project, probably because they were afraid the other armies would make fun of their pigeon bombs. <laughs> no, the, the trainers became too attached to the pigeons. These yeah. bombs keep targeting birdseed factories. <laughs> so during the Cold War, the U.S. wanted to gather all the intel they could on the Soviets, so they had spies everywhere. One of the most unorthodox they tried to use was a cat. Nice. So cats go everywhere and people don't seem to mind. So they decided to wire up one and send it to the Soviet Union just to see if it picked up anything interesting. Surely a cyborg cat can do the same thing. Why is that cat wearing a shirt? (laughs) So they couldn't very well have a cat with a tiny vest on. So over the course of five years, they surgically implanted a transmitter into the cat's skull, replaced its ear canal with a microphone, stuffed a battery in its guts, and ran an antenna up its tail. Oh. Uh. (laughs) They then moved on to training the cat. This did not go well. (laughs) Yeah, they don't even do well when you put, like, a a collar on them sometimes. It acted like, well... A cat. It it got distracted, wandered off, or stopped to clean itself instead of sticking to the mission. Oh, shit, guys. Training cats is hard. (laughs) The scientists eventually said, well, that's what we wanted, right? To just kind of wander around? (laughs) 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 So after five years and $20 million, they released their cat into the wild. Never to be seen again. (laughs) It came to the first road, failed to look both ways, and was run over by a taxi. (laughs) No! <laughs> well, no, they've hit someone's cat. They've hit someone's. Why is recorder and cat? <laughs> so the project was promptly scrapped. So was the cat. Yeah. <laughs> didn't even try again. Well, it took forever to get all that stuff for that cat. And finally, anti tank dogs. Oh, I've, I've heard of these. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So towards the end of World War I, the Soviets were starting to think of ways dogs could help with the war. One of the ideas... Lazy dogs. (laughs) ...was to have them run under enemy tanks, drop an explosive, and make a cool action hero exit as the tank blew up. This was tried, but it was too expensive to use remote detonators, so timed bombs were used instead. Trouble was, the dogs struggled with the pull string and release mechanism for the bombs, and it would frequently come trotting back to their handlers with the bombs still attached right as the timer hit zero. (laughs) Did I do a good job? Am I a good boy? (laughs) I did that thing you told me to. (laughs) A last-ditch effort was to have them just hide under the tanks and stay there, blowing themselves up along with the tanks. 
The dogs were trained under simulated conditions to run under a tank to get food. But there were some problems. First, the recorded explosion sounds they used during training were very different from real-life bullets and explosions. The dogs tended to freeze up on the battlefield and just get shot. Second, it turns out that they didn't identify tanks by sight as much as by smell. The Soviets used different fuel for their tanks during the training than the Germans, Uh so the dogs frequently ran under the wrong tanks. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) This plan was so bad that the total number of tanks taken by anti-tank dogs was maybe 12. Once the Germans captured one of the dogs before it blew up, They took a look at the setup the Soviets had and decided it was so dumb that they weren't going to waste the time to reverse engineer it. (laughs) Shortly after that, the project was scrapped. See, and I also read that in some of the tests, they didn't train the dogs with the tanks on. Yeah. So the dogs would be released, run at the tank, go, oh shit, that's loud. Run back to the guy. Yeah. (laughs) Let him go like, sir, (laughs) we have a problem. So let's end today by talking about America's Mark 14 torpedoes. So it's World War II, and Pearl Harbor just happened. This pulls the U.S. into a war they really were trying to stay out of, and it had been going on for some time. The U.S. had a lot of ground to make up fast. German subs were nasty and made successful use of torpedoes, so the U.S. decided they needed torpedoes that were even cooler. (laughs) (laughs) Flames coming out of the sun. And dogs. (laughs) (laughs) This was how the Mark 14 came to be. It was a bit of a rush job, but it was super cool. These torpedoes were bigger and could shoot further than any torpedo ever made. What's more, they had this wicked awesome magnet detonator that would sense when they were under a ship and blow it up where it was at its weakest. The technology was so cool that basically the entire instruction manual on how to use them was redacted, so the torpedoes were shipped out with no instructions. (laughs) They're just that cool. Do not get close to metal. Oh shit, you're in a submarine. (laughs) As I said, the U.S. was in a hurry, so they didn't feel like they had a whole lot of time for testing. They fired two torpedoes at an old derelict sub. The first shot went harmlessly by, but the second detonated right where it was supposed to. The engineers looked at their 50% success rate, wrote the first torpedo off as a fluke, and shipped them out. (laughs) Good enough. (laughs) Hooray. The Navy eagerly set out with their new torpedoes, but it very quickly noticed that they had some problems. In one encounter, a U.S. ship found a Japanese tanker sleeping and fired four torpedoes at it. This was followed by four resounding clangs as the torpedoes hit the tanker and then sank to the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Who did this? (laughs) The tanker, woken by all the noise, took off running. After a long chase, the U.S. fired two more torpedoes. They both hit and exploded, killing the tanker's engines. With the tanker dead in the water, the sub circled around for the perfect shot. Sliding smoothly into position, the sub fired. Clang. No explosion. (laughs) They fired again. Clang. And again, and again. Japanese are going, are they just messing with us? Just get it over with. They finally heard a little push that sounded like a big explosion of water, but it turned out that the last torpedo had ricocheted up, flying out of the water like a salmon, (laughs) splashing back down. The tanker didn't have much else to do, so they called for help. (laughs) A Japanese destroyer came stomping in to ask what all the noise was about, and the sub turned tail and ran. You can keep it down on him. (laughs) So it fired two more torpedoes as it left, resulting in two more clangs. The sub had fired 15 shots, and only two had detonated. When they got back and reported this, they found that other ships were having the same problem. Over the next few months, an 800 torpedoes fired, 80% failed to detonate. 
the engineers just scoffed and said, boy, you guys are bad shots. <laughs> it can't be our perfect torpedoes that we tested two whole times. As the reports stacked up, the engineers refused to acknowledge the problems. The Navy got fed up and ran some of their own tests. They found that these torpedoes ran 10 to 15 feet or 3 to 5 meters deeper than they were supposed to. They also tended to curve wildly. And even though it was suggested that they be fired straight at enemy ships, the Navy found that they would blow up sometimes if they hit at an oblique angle, but couldn't get a detonation at 90 degrees with any of their tests. Weird. The engineers still wouldn't hear it. However, in 1943, the USS Tillaby was sunk when a Mark 14 torpedo was fired, curved in a perfect circle, and struck herself. (laughs) (laughs) That's about as bad as a weapon can go. This finally got the engineers to face facts, and all of the Mark 14s were recalled. They were replaced a few months later with the Mark 18s, and these actually worked. Unfortunately, most of the bad torpedoes are already thrown away by bouncing off of enemy ships. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Meanwhile, the engineers sitting there, no, I demand that they sleep with them because the British will steal them. (laughs) (laughs) Look how jealous they are. And that was the last of the stories that I had. Anybody have any personal strange weapon stories? Adam. Uh, Uh, I remember hearing a story in nuke school about a, I guess it's not really a weapon, but uh, they were trying to design a ship that could turn invisible, basically. Oh, yeah. But uh, I don't know how, I never really looked into it, so it could just be. You never saw nuke it? Nuke school gossip. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't have any, all my family were police officers and they often get called places. One time my brother found a weapon that he described as a Baseball bat with two saw blades attached to chains that a, a man had been swinging around. Jeez, man. Sounds like it'd be just as dangerous for the swinger. Yeah, yeah. you know. Also, uh, I mentioned the book earlier, if you can even get any more, it's called My Tank is Fight, and it's about all the weird World War II shit. That, and like you said, basically Churchill and uh, Adolf were going, if somebody bring up an idea, they go, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of weird stories about tanks. There was one that was basically like they took a tractor and they just like slapped some armor onto it. And they said, oh, it's a tank. And they just sent it out into the battlefield (laughs) and it just got run over by all the real tanks. All right. Well, if nobody has any more personal stories, we'll move on to what are your morals worth? So how much to get dazzled? (laughs) It's not permanent, is it? It's not permanent anymore. Well, you're testing it. Oh, man. They're working on making it not permanent, but uh, they need to They're test it. working on it. They got to test it on someone. It's going to be a big payoff if there's a chance, a pretty good chance that I'm going to be permanently blind. $500 million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a that's not a small ask. You'll just you're just going to get dazzled permanently. <laughs> what, if, what if it left cool scars on your eyes like in uh, Doctor Strange? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but still, I'm blind. I wouldn't be able to appreciate them. <laughs> That's true. Are there sequins on the handle? <laughs> I don't know. Can I get the person dazzling me to dress up like Dazzler from the X-Men? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's required. Yeah, she's the lead scientist, actually. Can we also play the song Blinded by the Light? <laughs> <laughs> ah, the irony, it hurts. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that they have been doing some testing, and in worst-case scenarios, people go blind for, like, a few days as their vision, like, slowly trickles back in. That'd be scary. But so far, no one that I've seen has gone permanently blind from this thing. Then I'll I'll lower my asking price to $250 million. (laughs) I like seeing. Yeah, seeing is (laughs) I do that most of the time. I don't think I'll really go blind, but I mean, it is the U.S. military and they have more money than the rest of the world put together. So, so they might as well give you some. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll go five million. Ten, I feel like I could million. do this for a cool mill. Yeah, one million. Damn, mm, I need more nice. money. I really, really like to see. How did Kelly <laughs> win this one? <laughs> well, yeah, you, you've only got one good eye left, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they could dazzle the other eye all day. Oh, yeah, I'll just have him shoot the one eye. <laughs> He's unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> pew, 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 pew. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all we have for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks to my co-hosts for joining me today. Thanks to Gerard, our awesome editor. And thanks to you for tuning in. If you'd like more information about today's episode, check out our website at acidpoppodcast.podbean.com. You can join us on our subreddit, Acid Pop Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Acid Pop Podcast for updates almost every month. Or you can send us an email at acidpoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>